Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener-supported, so your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week, and see you all in the new year. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So today we've got quite the COVID episode for you. I'm here with my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. Abby Cardis. Hello. And Phil Rocco. Hi, am. And right now we're at the top of August, almost two months out from the end of the federal public health emergency in the United States and three months out from the so-called unwinding of Medicaid, in which the Biden administration is, again, presiding over the single largest concentrated loss of healthcare coverage in U.S. history. So far, uh, 3.8 million Medicaid enrollees have been disenrolled as of August 3rd, 2023. And across the states that are reporting the available data as to why people are being disenrolled, so far, 74% of all people losing their Medicaid coverage are losing it because of procedural paperwork-related reasons. And once again, in the middle of summer, COVID-19 is everywhere, and the few remaining pandemic metrics in place, like patchy sewer surveillance, which is often referred to as wastewater data, hospital admissions, ER visits, etc., that's all ticking up. Even the Walgreens uh, proprietary COVID test positivity tracker is showing some of the highest rates of test positivity they've had since May of 2021. And while some people still refuse to believe in the possibility of summer transmission of COVID, it seems now that the dominant attitude is to say, yeah, it's happening, but it's really no big deal. So with fall coming and a very uncertain future for the U.S. COVID response, you know, mitigations are gone. The tools are passed to the private market. Data is scarce or non-existent. But one thing is for sure, even with the scant information that we have, cases are going up. People are sick with COVID right now. Hospitalizations are up. If it's all starting to sound predictable, that's because it unfortunately is. And of course, you know, the Biden administration have all swooped in with all of the reasons why we have the tools when we don't and how we have to accept high levels of illness, debility and death for the sake of GDP. When again, we actually don't need to accept that. But essentially, the prevailing attitude that we're going to be talking about today is, you know, that 
people are as disaffected about COVID as ever. When asked for comment, Politico paraphrased the White House's response to, quote, the uptick is not unexpected in an article that was originally titled COVID-19 cases are climbing, but don't be alarmed. So that's really just kind of the general vibe that we're going to be checking in on today. And into this environment, which we're going to talk about on the second half of the episode, Former COVID czar Ashish Jha has uh, emerged from the ether to do some presumably free labor for the Biden administration, (laughs) promising, uh, quote, with a few basic steps, most of us can finally ignore COVID. (laughs) So we'll be talking at length about Jha's loathsome July 31st op-ed for the Boston Globe. Dr. Feelgood is back. (laughs) (laughs) I love love that uh, seemingly he doesn't have a good enough PR person to tell him, like, you maybe want to take a little bit of a vacation away from the public spotlight. You know what I mean? The way that like, I don't know, Obama just, I guess what jet skis and produces like weird Netflix lib content now. Um, or <laughs> like, l- like lists of books. he's reading. Yeah, exactly. Folks, I'm checking like, out Van Morrison. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to go back to like playing your, uh, your same hits that got you run into and then quickly out of the White House immediately after <laughs> leaving, I assume. But, you know, well, well, we'll get into that. Yeah. And before we get into Jaws piece specifically, I want us to just take a step back and look at some of this latest wave of COVID normalization that we've been seeing. You know, some of the ways that we're seeing this dressed up as the new, newer normal and really all part of Biden's plan. You know, it's totally fine and OK for cases to be ticking up. Don't change your behavior. These are kind of the marching orders that we're seeing, like reverberating throughout the press right now. I mean, I think what's really interesting uh, and maybe illustrative in this case is to compare what we're seeing now to what happened this time last year and how the press was talking about it. Because, you know, in that case, last year we had this much earlier summer surge that was attributed to BA5. Um, Of course, while BA5 was like the most dominant variant in the US at the time, we can also attribute that summer surge in summer 2022 to stuff like what we were talking about here on the show as I think were pretty reasonable. Uh, Other explanations like, for instance, that spring just after the Omicron wave, uh, the last remaining states had dropped their masking guidance. In April, the federal transportation mask mandate had ended April 2022, obviously. Um, And then, of course, into all of this, funding for testing was completely undone, which led to such stuff as what we called out in COVID year three headlines from the Washington Post like May uh, 17th's Uh, quote, how big is the latest U.S. coronavirus wave? No one really knows. Um, And so in that sense, it's almost like, you know, we kind of to some extent, it could seem like it's just a a repeat of the same thing, like plus a change or or something like we're just Mm -hmm. uh, COVID Groundhog Day or something like that. (laughs) Although I do think that it's it's interesting because the it, it is interesting to look at like the 2022 summer wave and see the way people were talking about it. So, so for example, like in that article, uh, Washington Post wrote, quote, Americans are navigating murky waters in the latest wave of the pandemic with highly transmissible subvariants of Omicron spreading as governments drop measures to contain the virus and reveal less data about infections. Experts say Americans can assume that infections are five to 10 times the official counts, which is not anything like we're getting now. In fact, if anything, we're getting stuff like, um, what was it in like the in the David Leonhardt piece a couple of weeks ago? He said basically it's likely that you know infections are overcounted or that you know hospitalizations are like a, an overcounted metric. In any case, and then you know in that article they went on to mention that the White House actually like officials went out 
that week in like May 2022 and suggested that people wear masks. You know, this is not something that we're seeing anymore. But then, of course, there there was other stuff that sounds more similar to like what we're seeing today, like uh, July of 2022, the New York Times wrote COVID rises across U.S. amid muted warnings and murky data um, with the subheader. Health officials say the wave is cause for caution, not alarm, which probably sounds really similar to what I mean. What was it that you said the Politico headline was? The be? Politico headline is uh, COVID-19 cases are climbing, but don't be alarmed. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, I think I also called this one out in uh, COVID-3, but July 2022, um, the Hill ran a headline covid cases are skyrocketing again states have no new plans <laughs> and that's so you know to to an extent that's the uh i don't know again it, it feels like almost the same like oh yeah it's a problem for some people maybe yeah yeah cases are rising hospitalizations are rising too but like and there there was there was sort of a sense i think in last summer in sort of the coverage around it that like oh yeah we've been kind of more abandoned or something like that or there's or if not abandoned, because I don't think the press would have used that terminology the way that we did that, you know, for example, we are in the dark, at least, and that there was a sentiment that that's kind of bad, I think. And I don't think that we share that sentiment anymore here sitting in the summer of 2023. You know, there's there's all this stuff going around, like from the New York Times this year, uh, from August 2nd of this year, 2023, amid signs of COVID uptick, researchers brace for the new normal um, actually the new normal is like a phrase that we're kind of seeing floating around and recirculating over and over again now, mm. uh, which is interesting because I feel like it's been almost two years since the new normal has been asserted. Um, <laughs> and you know, in, in that, in that article, actually the, the New York times piece, I just want to, um, flag this. I think it's really fascinating because in this article, they say, uh, this is again, the New York times on August 2nd, um, they basically suggested a way, right? Or suggest the implications of COVID away by saying, quote, nearly all Americans have built up multiple layers of immunity following repeated infections, immunizations, or both. So the virus is unlikely to cause the harm this winter that was seen previous seasons. Still for older adults, pregnant women, and people with weakened immune systems or certain chronic conditions, the virus may yet pose a serious threat, which, you know, obviously it's yet another kind of articulation of like, the pandemic is other people. Right. Um, but then just mm-hmm. moments later, they talk to these, you know, researchers basically who give them an assessment of estimates for what to expect. And they say that in a sort of best case scenario in which basically uh, everyone, people of all ages, they write, uh, they write people of all ages, quote unquote, opt for the updated vaccine and, you know, get a booster, which I think is unlikely considering our booster rate is still hovering at 17% in the U.S. That quote, COVID might cause 484,000 hospitalizations and 45,000 deaths, uh, which they then liken to quote, the toll of a bad influenza season. My so God. it's like, it's very, it's not even subtext, it's very text, like it's, the pandemic yeah. is other people and here are all this, here, you know, you can imagine, oh, maybe, maybe we'll lose 45,000 people in the rosy scenario. I'm not saying yeah. we're, but, you we're know, not going to well, get our hair must, you know. <laughs> yeah. What's so fucked up about this is like, we've been subjected to like many, many years of these influenza comparisons, which I think are a little bit spurious to begin with, you know, like we've been subjected to this like discourse for the past several years now about how, well, when COVID is uh, 
causing a death toll that's like a seasonal influenza season. And that's like when we'll know that the pandemic is really over. And here they're like, okay, well, this is like the best case scenario, which is basically the same thing. <laughs> like, it's like good enough, you know, like if only everyone just like behaved perfectly and the virus like behaved in a perfect predictable way, then, you know, this like coming fall winter surge would be the same as an influenza season. And, and that's good enough for us. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's good enough to declare that this is like over and people don't need to worry about it. I just think that's really interesting because it's a culmination of like wishful thinking that I think is like able to thrive in this like vacuum basically of information about what is actually going on with COVID cases. Well, I mean, and the thing is like the, there's a vacuum of information at the macro level, right? That's that's really where the, there's a, a lack of information. But I think the the interesting thing to me is like why why issue statements, why sort of do um, why do the kind of prep work right for this? If it's you know, you're not really thinking it's going to be a big deal. You have to imagine that somebody somewhere is thinking, oh, shit. Uh, there's a bunch of things that we haven't planned for that we Mm -hmm. don't, we don't in fact have the tools for, and people are going to experience a lot of really unpleasant surprises of one kind or another over the next six months. And we're going to have to have something to say about that, or we're going to have to inoculate as it were, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, you know, against the. Uh, sort of perceptions that we haven't done enough or that they're, you know, whatever that we've commercialized, you know, all of these uh, tools and technologies to try to deal with this and that we've unwound Medicaid and, you know, all of these things. But there is this sort of like residual thing that you can't get around, which is like hospital, like it's not merely the, you know, pandemic itself, but the fact that like, oh yeah, hospitals still are in this situation where their CEOs are reducing staff to juice profits, like all, all of the normal pathology of, of the American health system remains. And you're going to have this surge and you really haven't done anything about this. And you've like it tied your own hands. Um, and so like and, and it's like and every tool that you have ranging from regulation to uh to subsidy to now even the act of persuasion guarantees that you're not going to have people behaving in the quote unquote best case scenario conditions, right? Like you're not even doing the basic persuasive act. So now all you have, the only tool that you have is this sort of, you know, I, I don't know, just the, and I think we've documented this in so many different episodes. Like the only tool left is just PR and, 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 and blame avoidance PR at that. Well, absolutely. I think it was so interesting because at the end of this New York Times article, there's like the weirdest mention of masking that I've ever seen. It's like, oh, well, nobody thinks that this is going to turn into anything. But some people say that, you know, like when cases are going up, you could you could choose to like consider, you know, wearing a mask inside again. And it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, when is this hypothetical future when it's a good idea to wear a mask, like going to arrive? Because this is now like the sixth or seventh, like case increase that, you know, I've lived through and it's never the right, you know, like it's never the right time. It's always like, well, if things get so bad at some future point, you know, like you could consider testing and like being mindful of who you're breathing on and maybe wearing a mask. And it's like, (laughs) Oh my God. Like the time is fucking now. The time is now. Like 
you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but I think it just goes to what Phil is saying. Like they're not even, yeah. The only, the only tool that we really have is like managing public perception and like managing (laughs) the rhetoric and like the expectations of what's going to happen around this, which is a fucking bummer. (laughs) It's so true though. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about what exactly people really mean when they're like, it's not time yet to, to put the mask back on. Like, don't worry. When the fuck is it time? When the fuck is it time? (laughs) I think I have an answer. I've been thinking about this so much. (laughs) Well, no, it's, it's that it's time to put the mask on once you become like a vulnerable person like me. That's when mm-hmm. time is, right. right? That's that's what they're talking about. It's not Once you become time, an abstraction. <laughs> right, it's not a time yeah. for well, society. The assumption is you are it's the a only time for an individual. class of people who should have been doing that from about a, you know, a year ago on. Right, right. And, mm-hmm. and it's a fully individuated view of time, right? Like yep. it's mm-hmm. it's each personal person's time, right? And they're speaking <laughs> right. writ large Damn. that generally it is not the time for the the sort of so-called healthy dominant majority to put mm-hmm. on masks because they are not in the surplus sick minority yep. yet. Yep. And yep. upon which you find yourself transitioning from dominant class to surplus class, that is the time at which you should know that it's time to mask. I mean, I think that's why... You know, we when we think about those recommendations and those comments that people are making, I know I'm being like hyper literal here, but I think it is important because we we do assume or at least I assume in some sense, based on the framing the way things are said, that when people say things like that, like now is not the time to, you know, put your mask back on, put it in the closet like an umbrella, use it for later, you know, these kinds of like ideas about there being a time, we're thinking about that in a collective sense, in a sense of, you know, population level, like society wide masking. And they're absolutely not talking about that. They are talking about very specific individual points in time that each and every individual person is going to have to come to a point where they make a decision to put a mask back on. And it is not at all I think talking about anything society wide when people Mm -hmm. reference that kind of framework. Yeah, definitely. It's practically saying like, oh, feel comforted, child. And the fact that when you feel personally endangered, you can, you know, take that mask back from off the shelf. But until then, I mean, you wouldn't want to be a coward, would you? (laughs) You Yeah. yeah. It's like it's the uh, this ongoing theme is like the personalization of the pandemic and it's still, it shouldn't, but it's still kind of like almost surprises me how much of the like Biden administration's rhetoric and like rhetoric in, you know, obviously articles like the New York times, whatever, which is like very invested in rationalizing like the success of this presidency at like dealing with COVID. Um, It always still kind of surprises me how much these outlets and these like spokespeople for the administration treat this personalization as if it's something like totally awesome. You know, like it's like Democrat brain of like, well, who wouldn't love to go on to the healthcare exchanges and like, compare <laughs> plans yes. and like figure 100%. out what's going to work. For- but, you know, it actually like creates a lot of burdens for people at the individual level. Like the amount of like burden that that places on people is unbearable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I don't know, it's still it's like that dissonance between like, oh, how awesome it is that like you, you know, like you are situated in time in a way that's completely like unique to you. And like you get to figure out, like you get to take all this confusing fucking information that we like present <laughs> in the most like downplaying way possible and like figure it out. But uh, I don't know, that's really only, as we all know, that's really only like half of yeah. the story, but it's like becoming less and less, you know, like there's never going to be the lip service that's being paid to people that are still, you know, quote unquote vulnerable to COVID at this point in time is but like it, diminishing more and more. Well, and it does have a way of keeping the, you know, the conversation about public health in the domain of even to the extent that there's like persuasion, persuasion about individual um, behaviors rather than, you know, rather than even paying lip service to the things that were, you know, could could be found in the Biden administration's campaign level idea about what mm-hmm. a, you know, post covid, you know, government would look like or what policies would look like or even the kinds of things that get mentioned breathlessly in the American College of Physicians policy paper that just came out, which is like, you know, planning. I think the framing is sort of around planning for the next you know, pandemic. And it even, you know, goes so far as to mention, like, we need universal paid sick leave and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's but but it's it's not even mentioning those things breathlessly as collective uh, demands. Right. It's just like <laughs> the only obligatory passage point here is through you. try. It's, you know, living life as only a microeconomist could live it. Right. Like, yeah. It's like the gamification of, of everyday <laughs> life. And it's like, I'm going to wake up in the morning uh, you know, like woke up this morning, got my Emily Austin calculator out. Like, fucking, you know, like. yeah. Well, and if you, if you're a good little, a good little, you know, girl in my case, and you get your booster and vaccination, then only 500,000 people are going to die of COVID this winter. Right. Exactly. It's and like, that's the best case scenario. Like what the fuck? Well, that's, I mean, I want to zero in back on that uh, line again from the New York Times thing. I'll just read it again. Quote, in the best case scenario with people of all ages opting for an updated vaccine and a variant that is susceptible to that vaccine, um, which we already know that the variant that it's designed for is yeah, coming out is it's already going to be out not, of date. Yeah. It's, but, but, but anyway, this is like magical realism from like a habitual like horse racetrack gambler. Right. Like if the weather's right and I've picked the right person and I've placed the right bet and if all the conditions align, like ugh. then only forty five thousand deaths. Right. So then, but it's yes. a, anyway, uh, jackpot. Anyway, quote, and a variant that is susceptible to that vaccine, COVID might cause 484,000 hospitalizations and 45,000 deaths about the toll of a bad influenza season. And I think this encapsulates perfectly the, you know, the vibe, if you will. It's like even, you know, obviously this is on this is operating on a, on a continuum. None of this will be surprising to anyone who's been listening for a long time in a way, but it's sort of like even more so than ever before i think the response is like oh ho hum so boring like who are these people who are dying anyway it's just you know <laughs> yeah you didn't these... give a fuck about people dying of influenza before like why <laughs> right. start now um you know didn't you see the opening box office numbers for barbie the pandemic's over you know um, <laughs> um i mean for those who don't know what i'm talking about that's literally a new york times headline uh from july of this year i guess this will also hopefully make this a little bit more uh 
you know, ever if you're listening to this in the future, yes, in July 2023, the New York Times ran a headline titled Barbie Box Office to the World, the pandemic is officially over. Ugh. Well, and I I don't know. I've been thinking so much about, you know, when when we've been talking about like the whole idea about the off ramps, but not on ramps and the directionality of the COVID response. You know, part of what mm-hmm. I feel like is really going on, right, is that we've been what what was the off ramp from, right? Like what highway are we exiting to where? And I think what we're we're almost sort of looking at right now is a moment where we're seeing a couple ideas about causality be really dominant. And in that, it also contains these like big, bold, grand lies about COVID that are really key to, I think, maintaining some of this fantasy that we can continue to live with COVID by doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know, one thing I think that I just want to point out before we move on is that also a lot of the the discussion that we've seen about COVID and, you know, the existence and persistence of COVID continuing despite, you know, everyone doing their best to ignore it and pretend like it's no big deal. You know, we're also seeing this like resurgence of language that that mystifies COVID and yes. that both frames it as like, we know everything about COVID. We have all the tools. It is no fucking big deal. Shut the fuck up, you crazy hypochondriacs, right? And also, COVID is so mysterious. COVID is so tricksy. COVID How did COVID get so us. smart? Right. You know, COVID's manipulating us. Ooh, if we luck out and get a COVID that's favorable and, and takes shows its favor to the vaccine, you know, the, these ideas of like, you know, pretending that virus evolution is rare and a surprising event when it occurs, mm-hmm. like that's a huge part of this coverage. The idea that like, you know, that the immunity wane is something that comes as a magic destiny, right? And couldn't have anything to do with population level changes in behavior patterns like, say, masking, right? Like that the effectiveness of the vaccines during those early trials, that they're, you know, Efficacy had nothing to do with the conditions of the world, right? But had everything to do with some sort of like biological reality about what the virus was at the time and sort of what the vaccine was that slowly shifted, right? You know, we have all of these ideas that really like hide the fact that transmission of COVID is a driver of transmission of COVID. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's the biggest lie that that all of this sort of stands up. You know, it's like people are like, oh, hard to say, you know, if, if COVID's a problem anymore, but we've got the tools and everyone has to make their own personal decision. And, and obviously what is left out of that and what is being hidden over and over and over again is that everybody's COVID case is linked to everyone else's. Transmission of COVID is a fundamentally social and biological phenomenon. It is not merely a personal choice, right? Yeah. This is and not it merely, you know, biological magic and a manipulative tricksy virus trying to thwart the United <laughs> States. Like, we are not protecting from transmission. Therefore, there is transmission, right? Like, it's actually very simple, but a lot of work has to go into hiding something that's like very obvious and simple. Yeah, it doesn't. The only thing I'll add to that before we move on, something that I like a thought in in these exact words that I had yesterday was that like COVID, like cases of COVID don't arise in just like a biological vacuum, Yes, (laughs) which sounds like so simple that you shouldn't have to say it. But like 
the entire field of public health is built on the premise that all diseases occur in like a total biological vacuum. You know what I mean? Like severed from the social contexts that like motivate people to do the activities that they have to do. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> to live their lives, which is how people end up uh, becoming infected. So I just wanted to kind of underline that point. Like yeah. transmission doesn't happen. Infections don't just like arise out of nowhere. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you guys have sort of framed it like this about these sort of basic facts that I mean, especially maybe something that B, you just said towards the beginning of what you were just saying about how they're kind of like fundamental lies that just get repeated over and over again. I think it's interesting to think about those in light of the fact that, frankly, I think this thing that we're going to look at uh, today, the um, Ashish Jha, July 31st of this year, Boston Globe op-ed, which is uh, with a few basic steps, most of us can finally ignore COVID. Um, this op-ed, I think, contains actually so many of these kind of little, uh, whether whether you want to call them like lies, falsehoods, completely massaged truths or whatever, you know, th these things that are just sort of like things that you hear asserted all the time, but have no actual basis for them other than essentially there's something that the White House has been saying for a long time. And now Ashish Jha is no longer in the White House, but he's still staying them anyway, even though no one's giving him a paycheck to do so. Unless, um, I don't know, unless, well, whatever, it doesn't even matter. Like he's just, I, I assume that what he's trying to do here, as we'll talk about, is just sort of like continue the train of him being, you know, again, the reason he was brought into the White House in the first place, right? Like he was the, um, you know, stat news called him America's TV doctor mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, he was like this figure who became, you know, a, an inordinately important source for sort of cable news, COVID information, trying to be a calming, soothing voice for the U.S. to be like, you know, let's take like, quote unquote, take COVID seriously. But in so doing, not worry about it and not worry about needing to take collective action about it. It's like he's trying to pick up where he left off. And in so doing... It's very interesting just seeing like the stuff that he's repeating. Um, clearly, I think knowing that, you know, even though he's doing this on spec or whatever, I assume he has to know that like if he wants to get invited back to uh, a future Democrat White House, right, that uh, maybe he needs to continue to play nice. But anyway, obviously, a lot of people have been talking about this op ed, but I think it's honestly worth uh, just walking through and rebutting sort of as much as possible. And, you know, I, I do want to note that while, you know, over the weekend, the Boston Globe did publish a set of actually very good letters to the editor rebutting a bunch of Ashish's statements here, all saying kind of variations of the same thing, like, fuck this article, fuck off Ashish. I think it's still like worth getting into. There are, there are a couple of things I think that we'll talk about that I haven't seen people address elsewhere in their criticism of this. So I think that this will still be like a really useful exercise. Shall I, uh, shall I start this up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So again, without further ado, July 31st, 2023, this is Ashish Jaws Boston Globe op-ed, no longer working for the Biden administration, quote, with a few basic steps, most of us can finally ignore COVID. It begins. On a recent warm and humid summer night, a group of public health colleagues and I were approaching a restaurant for dinner, inside or out, I asked. Not long ago, COVID-19 would have decided outside, but not that night. We ate inside where it was cooler. Like so many others, we are living with COVID. The <laughs> virus isn't going anywhere, but how safely we live with it has changed dramatically. 
Literally, what does that even mean, though? I'm sorry. We live yeah, in for, our for, own for little whom? fugues of time. <laughs> Most Americans have resumed the full range of their pre-pandemic activities. Concerts, parties, summer camps, and family events. The rest of America, <laughs> we've completely fucked over. But with the virus still circulating, many who have gone back to pre-pandemic life still worry if they are safe. <laughs> it makes sense to be wary... We have lived with these risk assessments and daily decisions for almost four years. Okay. Can we talk about that line for a second? Yes. We have lived with these (laughs) risk assessments. Yeah. Yes. We have lived. It makes sense to be wary. We have lived with these risk assessments and daily decisions for almost four years. He has translated a respiratory pandemic, living with COVID, a novel pandemic, a global like society disrupting disease event, right? That is a risk assessment and daily decision. Like, that's how you're going to frame it. This is a beautiful piece of PR to point back to what Phil was saying in terms of like what the actual tool is. The only tools that we have is fucking Ashish jaw, like spouting we have the tools in any media outlet that will take him. Right. Like the tool is a framework like translating COVID that has killed millions of people in the course of three years into risk assessments and daily decisions. Well, and it's, it's a similar thing, like how opponents of really any sort of like pandemic precautionary measures lumped all of them into like the framework of lockdown. Right. And then Mm -hmm. identified all of the shit that people hate about living through a pandemic with like the experience of lockdown. And like, I feel like a similar slippage is happening in this line. It's like, oh, we've lived with these risk assessments. It's like, yeah, true. That was the scary part of COVID for me. The was risk doing, assessments. Was doing the risk assessments and the daily decisions. Like, wow, you're right. Like, that was the... And I mean, I think that that's maybe true. Like, maybe that is what people experienced as, like, the onerous part some people, of, like, yeah. living through COVID. Yeah, some people... Um, but uh, I think, uh, I don't well, know, I don't really have a point here, but this line, I mean, like you're saying, I'm glad that uh, we picked it out to sort of criticize because I feel like there's like an incredibly sinister rhetorical movement going on here, which is like, oh, the tools that we use to cope with the pandemic are actually like what caused the pandemic to be so horrible. And like, it makes sense that you're terrified after having <laughs> to live with these risk assessments, you know, for so many years, but like, rest assured you know, it's it's all over now. Like, you don't yeah. have to do that anymore. You're and the also, operator like, with your pocket calculator. It didn't yeah. have to be like that. Yeah. Like, you could have just, like, issued broad recommendations for, like, universal society-wide layered protections that, you know, reflected a precautionary approach to dealing with a respiratory disease. And people didn't have to, like, make daily risk calculations and individuated frameworks for how to understand the pandemic. Like, if, you know, if you're saying that's a problem, Ashish, you should also be apologizing to those people because you are the one, you are one of the ones who helped usher in that as the understanding of the pandemic and who helped naturalize that as the only way the pandemic was going to be, right? So Mm -hmm. if that sort of exhaustion and pandemic fatigue is downstream of anything. It's not protections themselves. It's not masking. It's not layered mitigation. It's people like Ashish Jha who have come out there and said, this is all about risk management. This is about individuation. And you need to think through 
50 complex things every single day to make these decisions. They are the ones who impose that complexity yeah. and that yeah. strain yeah. and that yeah. exhaustion. It has nothing to do with the protections themselves. It has to do with the impositions of commentators who, you know, were part of imposing the system of sort of risk management as the primary way of understanding the pandemic through this individuated lens. Well, and as we've talked about that, not just among the commentators, but within the Biden administration as a form, that individuation, uh, the idea that you should, you know, uh, calculate your individual risk or whatever, but also that you should understand where you sit, like what category you sit in of the like individual groups who are told like this group. Yeah, you, it makes sense for you to still care about COVID. This other group, no, 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 don't go about your business or, or whatever the breaking of solidarity essentially Mm -hmm. that that Mm -hmm. um, has done in, you know, literally telling people, no, it's not your problem. It's there. You know what I mean? That, Mm -hmm. that adds that, that absolutely adds the complexity you're talking about. So the next thing I'm going to, this paragraph is actually rather dense. So I'm going to go back like a smidge and then finish that paragraph out. And I have something to say about a specific link that Ashish Jha uses in, in this uh, piece. So just really, really quickly. Um, so a- again, Ashish Jha writes, it makes sense to be wary. We have lived with these risk assessments and daily decisions for almost four years. And yet we are in a much different, much better place. We can protect ourselves with vaccines, which remain free and widely available. Unquote. And I want to just pause right here i will we will be moving on shortly but i just want to note that there is a link in that sentence that is the we can protect ourselves with vaccines which remain free and widely available that goes to a news story about the hhs bridge access program um which is a which is their solution like the biden administration's solution to how vaccines will putatively stay free for uninsured people following the end of the public health emergency, which, you know, ended in May. Um, for a longer discussion of this, actually, we uh, talked about it in an episode in May called No One is Left Behind, which I believe was a quote of, uh, that was actually, we were quoting Ashish Jha, as that was the title, actually. Um, important to note, the, like the, the important thing to know about this, this thing that he's referencing as, don't worry, the tools, the vaccine is still free, right? The HHS Bridge Access Program is the thing that we criticized as quote unquote, leveraging public commitments by vaccine manufacturers that they were going to set up a patient assistance program that would basically be like the vaccine is free to unvaccinated people as long as they meet certain criteria, fill out these forms, et cetera. And as long as the vaccine manufacturers, you know, Pfizer and Moderna um, are doing that, like have created patient assistance programs and are trying somewhat to certainly with significant administrative burdens in the form of paperwork and whatever, um, provide vaccines for free to uninsured people. Um, and that the, the sort of handshake deal that, uh, or not even handshake deal, the like wink and nod, I guess, of that HHS bridge access program announcement was that the Biden administration is was saying like, Hey, um, vaccine manufacturers, you guys said you're going to do a patient assistance program, right? Uh, make sure you do that. And if you do that, we will provide money to pharmacy chains to pay for the actual like dose administration fee so it doesn't get like billed to people's insurance which of course they don't have in this situation because they're uninsured that all sounds overcomplicated. again we have a whole description of it in the 
no one is left behind uh, episode. But like the long and short of it is uh, two things. One is that he's saying something again that is just not true. First of all, there's no guarantee necessarily that vaccines are going to continue to be free for uninsured people. And to the extent that they are, it sounds like the mechanism under which they're going to do it is a patient assistance program, which are like, you know, lousy with problems and, and burdens for people to go through to try and actually like use the program. And second, just as an, uh, by way of update, I guess, um, Pfizer and Moderna basically said like, this is the quote unquote public commitments part that they're talking about. Pfizer and Moderna said that they're going to do a patient assistance program for uninsured people. They both announced that sometime, uh, really early in the spring, um, slightly before HHS announced this program, but neither of them have produced information about this. There's there's been no further updates on whether there is actually a patient assistance program that's going to go into place. There's no like form or anything that you can fill out. This is like a big nothing, but it's being pointed to as though like, here's the proof that it, it's going to remain free. It's just preposterous. Well, and the, the, my favorite too was there's this reporting from early July that was like regarding the updated boosters in the fall. The Biden administration's plan for affordability has been to just urge Pfizer, Moderna and Novavax to make their prices, quote unquote, reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. OK. Handshakes, I'm sure that they, promises. I was going to say, I'm sure that their understanding of that could not possibly be influenced by, I don't know margin you know the desire yeah. for greater margins, yeah. like, which <laughs> which by the way not not to uh get back up on the soapbox or whatever but which by the way the main dialogue around pfizer specifically in the business press right now is that they are flagging because covid vaccine and paxlovid use is down um, so. they reported in their latest earnings call that only 12.4 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine have been administered in the United States this year so far. And uh, that's down from a projected 100 million. It's fucking so basically it's like wow. they're already uh, I think the quote that um, Albert Borla gave to the Wall Street Journal was um, we are moving post COVID um, in their priorities or whatever. So you can see. Uh, yeah, I mean whatever sees pharma what else the fuck can i say like we don't need this to be in the hands of private industry but yeah you know. yeah i mean but the biden administration's logic is like okay this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated but we have the tools and you know 3.8 million people and counting are getting kicked off of the insurance of last resort for poor people they're still celebrating their quote-unquote alleged record low uninsured rate which is just <laughs> using old data to pat themselves on the back there are going to be no vaccines probably easily accessible for people who are uninsured. So if you follow that logic and, and you, you know, sort of connect that entire framework, you're, you're really, really telling on yourself at a really obvious and frank level that you do not give a shit about poor people. And that is sure. part of your framework, right? Like it's very obvious how much of this sort of personalization is about divorcing COVID from the material, you know, reality and the, you know, burden and suffering of like living through COVID when everything is your problem as an individual, you know, not something that could be foisted on sort of a, a society wide framework, but everything comes down to like, you know, a precise individual with their privileges and their access and their health status and whatever, you know, and, it's just a way of cost. And and I also think, I think it's worth mentioning is that the, 
There is no, in my view, anyway, I don't think that there's any response to that or any way of combating that that will come through uh, the professions. Um, And, you know, it's it's funny because Jaws op-ed here is timed with a piece that he wrote for the... uh, um, Journal of General Internal Medicine, I think, right? And mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the that piece is talking about this report that came out from the uh, American College of Physicians, which is like this like policy paper with like this list of recommendations. And it's like there's some stuff that's like, you know, good uh, in yeah. there, I guess, right? Um, but it's just like there's no – the the whole like, you know – concept of the administrative state is is premised on this idea of, you know, professions who are somehow independent from politics. They're able to speak truth to power. And <laughs> more more than that, they're they're not just able to speak truth to power, but their uh, the authority they have within the state actually gives them the ability to exercise uh, power and and be a countervailing force against whatever the politically easiest thing to do is. And I guess the the rosiest view that I could produce about what that means now is that the, to the extent that there was ever any such ability or capacity uh, of you know public health professionals to do that, it was entirely contingent on there being <laughs> a, a a slightly more organized working class or like the slightly like higher possibility of there being some sort of mass organization to do something. And that now, if that ever did exist, that's not there. And to the extent that there ever was any pride in being an independent voice, which again, I'm, I'm not saying that there was, um, but that the the figure of jaw is a an object lesson to you know ranks of followers ranks of younger uh people that the way to get ahead is to do whatever the most powerful person in the room tells you to do or the thing that you think you know is the most advantageous thing to do and and in that world there is no power of the, pro- the professions have no power except right. if they are doing what the uh political uh principles in within the you know formation of the capital state tell them um to do so there is you know so i guess my point is like yeah. i there's there's no shame there's no there's no moral suasion there's none of that like none of that persuasive capacity mm-hmm. Uh, like writing another op-ed, writing a letter to the editor, right? Like I don't see any of that. I mean, it's not that you, sh- it's not that you shouldn't do that, or that like the arguments don't matter. I think that they do, but it's very easy to get lost in in that political game of being right, of saying that this was wrong, and it's like where does the capacity come from, right, to counteract anything? Uh, that they're doing. I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's not going to come from the people that the whole, I think it's not just like the liberal imagination, but it's just the sort of more, more generic imagination that like, you know, there are these people in there and like, yeah, I, I think about that book by, um, um, sort of during the Trump administration, there was a book about like all of the, um, the kind of layers of bureaucracy that nobody thought about. And then like, oh, oh shit, like Trump's in control. And like, oh fuck, we have to think about what this very seemingly unimportant agency does. Um, and I think it was Michael Lewis uh, who wrote that book. And it was just like, 
Yeah, I mean, still in that ma- imagination of the state, it's like there are all of these re- like dutiful people who are going to like do the right thing and are not susceptible to, you know, political control. And, and that varies to some extent throughout the state. But here it obviously doesn't exist if it ever did. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that is also sort of so clear about especially the kind of intellectual work and the framing work that you've seen people like Ja do is that I think... That's part of why we've focused so much on like the process of translating this from like a society level understanding of how COVID works and like how to deal with it into the personalization, connecting that to like medicalization and and understanding just in general how, you know, health and survival are commodified is because ultimately like most of the intellectual labor that's going on right now actually centers around sort of producing that translation because, you know, initially I think that you you definitely had like a kind of broad framework for sort of thinking through the pandemic individually already, right? Like uh, our health systems were incredibly focused on an individual understanding of health, but it was a new sort of circumstance and a new phenomenon. And I feel like so much of what we're living through right now is, you know, an attempt to kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? And to recontextualize everything that's happened since under these models that we know are important drivers for certain things like, you know, just the incredibly powerful and growing health industry and the billions of dollars that are spent globally around all of these things having to do with medicalization. And this is a kind of like specific focus of the U.S. economy that I think we don't often talk about when we talk about U.S. wealth and productive power, right? Like Mm -hmm. healthcare in the U.S. is such a central force. And that individuation of health is so key to like how that market, you know, produces surplus profit and becomes part of like the power of the United States, the wealth of the United States, the wealth of individual states. I mean, Phil, all along, I think about the things that you've said about, you know, states and uh, premature reopenings, thinking back to our coverage in 2020, you know, that there is an imperative for states who aren't necessarily liquid. You know, they don't have all this cash sitting around. They have to maintain their credit score in order to have access to, you know, capital. Right. And so literally within the structure of the state, we're dealing with some of these initial conditions that are going to produce the effects that we're seeing in COVID, that are going to produce and require organized abandonment. Social murder is kind of the only ways that these capacities continue to exist because it's part of how they do structurally um, sort of exist in the first place. And I think what's really difficult is to sort of think about, you know, what we do next and what we do beyond just trying to like work against some of these framings that we're seeing that have been so important in driving it. Because as you're saying, you know, so much time is taken up in being reactive. And and part of that has to do with, you know, the fact that there is not a lot that like a single individual per se is understood to be able to do in this context. Part of it is that healthcare as a space is seen as like untouchable. Like it is this global thing that is never going to be small enough or local enough to like understand or organized against. And I think part of like what we need to really consider is the way that that kind of centralization of, of healthcare is also a fucking lie, right? Like, and the pandemic has made that really obvious. So Jaw continues, 
treatments like Paxlovid are more accessible than ever. Again, Pfizer's, uh, I think, I think Pfizer's earning call probably yeah. proved that wrong, but whatever. Treatments like Paxlovid are more accessible than ever. Innovative research continues with an updated vaccine expected in the fall that will better target the circulating variant. Um, this is like fan fiction. It is. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, anyway, a magical realist fantasy. Tests whatever. are available for those who still want to use testing. Like, what the fuck yeah, that I mean? love that. <laughs> And surveillance through wastewater and genomic sequencing is much better than it used to be. That is questionable. (laughs) Citation needed. Um, Add in large investments to improving indoor air quality and the infrastructure to respond more effectively to future outbreaks, and things are much better. Literally, what does that even mean? Uh, Yeah. Fucking PR fluff. The money. Meaningless shit curious to know i mean it's been a little while since i checked back in uh on this like story but there was you know there was money like earmarked for schools in you know biden's like stimulus bill i'm sorry that i can't remember like the actual american rescue plan the american rescue plan act thank you um but i seem to remember as of like last year around this time like large uh, you know there had there was reporting showing that large sums of that money that was apportioned, you know, for example, to schools and things like that hadn't been spent. Yeah. Um, you know, like the ventilation upgrades, the air quality upgrades have like not been super forthcoming, I don't think. And so it's, I mean, I know why he's doing it, but it's interesting and it's dishonest for jaw to kind of like fall back on like, well, you know, we set aside money to do this, so it's fine. And it's like, okay, but no, like, no, I mean, no, you're completely right. And actually I have, uh, I have the numbers that you're talking about. So oh, as, as far God. as, as far as is known actually, um, cause it's really unclear how much has been used, but like, so, you know, I'll, I'll just say caveat, obviously I know that he says, uh, what does he says? Quote, add in large investments in improving indoor air quality. Uh, he doesn't specifically say schools. And, you know, when we're talking about ventilation upgrades having happened, I guess he could be talking about something really vague about corporate America or something, yeah. but considering how often... We only ever often saw huge public fights about it with regard over to schools. schools though. Exactly. And so to that end, um, I brought up the April CDC MMWR, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, um, that has at least the you know, best known, uh, information about how much ventilation upgrade actually happened. And so, uh, when you look at that, it's a survey of K through 12 schools. They look at a couple of questions. Uh, one is how many schools replaced or upgraded their HVAC systems? 33.9% surveyed said, yes, they upgraded their HVAC systems. Um, 22.7% said no action was taken. So they didn't. Um, that's a full quarter or almost that's nearly a full quarter. But of course, what I find the most galling is 43.4% responded unknown. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's a no for probably for the most part. I mean, I, I I suppose it's possible that a lot of the respondents are just saying unknown because they truly don't know, but I feel like this is, you know, upgrading or replacing your HVAC system. That's a pretty big, 
It's um, a pretty, yeah, that's, that's yeah. A infrastructural level, a capital investment. Yeah. Um, then there's another question, uh, how many installed or even used, used, because, uh, you know, installed or had already and were using HEPA filtration systems in classrooms or in student dining areas. 28% said they did or do. 25.4% said no action taken. And 46.6% said unknown. So if we mm-hmm. look at that, Basically, to answer if again, if she is just talking about ventilation upgrades to schools, if we look at, you know, again, I'm sure uh, because this is just listed as unknown or whatever, like in this MMWR, in the study itself, like the authors say essentially that uh, they act, the authors assume that like in the unknown cases, probably a lot of them did the upgrades, but I see no reason why they should assume, why that. You would assume so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So if we assume the opposite of what they assume, and if we assume it is the worst case scenario, um, or we can say that it could be the worst case scenario where unknown just means no, we didn't, then that would mean um, 66.1% of schools would have not upgraded their HVAC systems, upgraded or replaced their HVAC systems, and 72% of schools would not be using HEPA filtration. So that's just, again, it's like, this is if this statement is about school ventilation and the amount of you know capital uh invested like amount the amount of money that the federal government invested in um like earmarked for school ventilation upgrades which i think we can assume that this comment is about that then it's just like this is complete fantasy world nonsense that he's writing well another thing that i think i i you know i was looking to sort of see like okay like HVAC, this is like a market. So can we look at like what the market is saying about itself? Has it had like (laughs) a huge boom the last couple of years? Are they patting themselves on the back? And like, absolutely. They're like, look at all this growth. But it is not absolutely obvious that HVAC is like booming out of control, right? Like it is like higher than they had estimated based on the previous 10 years of growth. But these are still like sort of reasonable reports about how the industry is doing. And they project that they're going to grow much more and at an extremely fast rate between now and 2030. They just put out like a huge report on themselves like that was looking at the global HVAC market. And I think it speaks to the fact that actually these upgrades you know, they're things that people want that everyone kind of agrees on, but they're not things that have necessarily actually happened yet. But it's a huge part of the pushback to office buildings is to make people feel like buildings are safe and shared space is safe and public life is safe and HVAC is part of how that works. But I think ultimately, a lot of that work is in promise and in theory and not necessarily implemented in the buildings and spaces that you're in every day. Also, not to layer on a compounding crisis here, but uh, the last couple of years have been record heat years. I would kind of assume that HVAC might be booming in America where people love HVAC. I don't know. I anyway. mean, you would think between all those things that it would be like astronomical growth, right? Between COVID and climate crisis, right? But it's pretty reasonable. And I think mm-hmm. it speaks to the fact that like these upgrades, they're desirable, but they're not happening at the pace that that the press kind of imagines them to. So back to Ja. The truth is that we can now prevent nearly every COVID death. <laughs> Prove it. Uh, yeah then do it you fucking bitch like <laughs> people who are people who are up to date on their vaccines and get treated when infected rarely get seriously ill even for the vulnerable like my parents who are in their 80s 
Vaccines coupled with treatments provide a very high degree of protection against serious illness. This is also true for most immunocompromised individuals. The fact is, now a few basic steps mean you can ignore COVID safely and get back to doing things that matter, even with COVID still around. Sounds like marketing copy for a, like, a, I don't know, this sounds like an antidepressant ad or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, it sounds like a pharma like ad. Don Draper's like final, final ad campaign. Think of these safety measures like the routine checkups that keep your car safe to drive. The framing of like vulnerability here is is highly prejudicial, right? Like the idea that is basically being not said outright, but is subtext here is that like, you know, those vulnerable people who say that they're concerned about their vulnerability to the pandemic. Like, they're not as vulnerable as they think they are. They're, they're not as vulnerable shit. as my 80 year old parents. Right. <laughs> like they're full of shit because if my 80 year old parents with Paxlovid are fine, if, you know, we can sort of segment immunocompromised down into as many small, little, tiny, tiny slivers and factions of who exactly is immunocompromised enough to be at risk, right? Like we create this perception that anyone who claims that they have increased vulnerability to COVID is like exaggerating, yeah. you know, for personal gain, likely, because they can't accept reality, probably, in Josh's view. I mean, Josh is like a doctor. Like, I'm, I'm not surprised that he is sort of framing these things, you know, as people just really don't understand their true, like, risk uh, relative to population. Like, sorry, like, outcomes don't work like that. Not everything is fucking random chance and roll of the dice. Like, society, structural things, the fucking social determinants of health that you, you know, will blab about. Yeah, like, we're not living in a Monte Carlo simulation. Like, exactly. there is causality Speak for yourself. In the world. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was living in a Monte Carlo simulation. Um, I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs and pick up, uh, with, with a big one. Probably a good idea. Otherwise this will be three hours long. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, jaw continues. What about long COVID? The evidence here is reassuring as well. Well, there you go, folks. Those who are up to date on their vaccines are far less likely to get long COVID. And when they do, it tends to be shorter lived and less severe and treatments may help reduce it too. For now, there is no foolproof way of avoiding long COVID short of avoiding infections altogether, but you can substantially reduce your risk with vaccines and likely treatments. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Like really leveraging uh, himself and his argument against the future value of these treatments that have yet to materialize. Also, these treatments don't link out to anything. He's not being specific about which treatments. And I... I yeah, because he can't. Because like, first of all, because of the Boston Globe's legal liability that will obviously... <laughs> first of all, what treatments for yeah. long COVID? Are you talking about forcing people to exercise and do CBT to try and talk themselves out of having long COVID? Are you talking about... Things that are being, you know, tested right now. Are you talking about taking Paxlovid? Because the last couple times that I saw any kind of like reporting on studies about Paxlovid and long COVID, that has been a pretty spectacular meh, leaning towards failure. You know, there was that recent study looking at long COVID um, symptom reduction long term for using like a dose of Paxlovid, like well into having long COVID. 
was not productive of anything interesting. There was like a study, uh, a huge study recently looking at Paxlovid for prevention also really was like, mm, not really helpful here either. So yeah. like, what the fuck are you talking about? And also to be clear, because, you know, you're bringing up get and CBT as like obvious, not good. Yes, these that, are yeah. bad treatments. Yeah, yeah. Like for these long are, COVID. Yeah. right. Um, <sighs> Sorry, this is exactly also doing the same thing as I was talking about in the last paragraph as framing anyone who's sort of claiming that they have long COVID as maybe not availing themselves of the treatments that are available to them. Mm. And maybe they don't want to get better. Maybe Perhaps they're enjoying fault, the cetera. sick role, yeah. secondary it, well, gain, yeah, that's, you know. There's a whole victim-blaming narrative tucked into this, which is like, mm -hmm. well, if you wound up with long, you know, were you a good little girl? Did you get your booster <laughs> on time? Like, did you follow the few basic steps? You know, because if your experience falls outside of this narrative, which is like, this narrative that, you know, is being solidified about where we are in the pandemic right now, like what has happened. This is like politically motivated to neutralize, I think, any calls for accountability from anyone involved in the Biden administration. And it slips so easily into this like victim blaming shit like, oh, your experience doesn't fit the politically motivated narrative that I am peddling because I'm like desperate to get rehired in a future White House like you must have done something wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the vibe that I get like from this piece. And I fucking hate it. This is actually, I would like to um, pause here and uh, read one of the response letters that the Boston Globe printed to Ashish Shah's yes. um, piece here, because I think that this, uh, this is the first one that was uh, printed in this like response to Ashish Shah. Uh, it's about specifically this paragraph. Obviously, it's about the whole article, um, but it's like specifically about this paragraph. Um, and I think it is very well stated. So uh, this was printed as uh, sort of a response rebuttal letter to the editor in the Boston Globe following this Ashish Jha letter. Uh, this is Ezra Spire or Spear. I'm not sure uh, from Oakland, California, who writes. I would love nothing more than to finally ignore COVID, as the headline to Dr. Ashish Jha's July 31st op-ed reads. As a healthy, vaccinated, and recently boosted 35-year-old, I did what he said. I ignored COVID-19 on a weekend trip with friends in September 2022, but the infection I got as a result has all but destroyed my life. A week after my infection, I began to experience intense fatigue, overwhelming headaches, and cognitive challenges that continue to this day. These symptoms are debilitating. I can no longer work, socialize, or travel. My finances are dire, and if I am unable to avoid another infection, my condition may deteriorate even further. Jaw wrote of long COVID, quote-unquote, treatments being promising. Perhaps he could clarify what treatments he is referring to, because my doctors say that there are no approved treatments for long COVID. A recent study funded by the NIH's Recover Initiative showed that 10% of adults infected with COVID still have symptoms six months later, even with vaccination. By downplaying the prevalence and debilitating outcomes of even moderate long COVID, Jaw is signing thousands of people up to the misery and despair with which I live every day. And again, you know, I think that that just extremely well said. Well, yeah, and also really. for all this talk of excess deaths plummeting and COVID being no big deal anymore, like folks with long COVID are dying every day, have been dying 
CDC has not like done a big press release talking about how many people have died from long COVID since like 2022 for all I could find when I was looking yesterday. If someone finds one more recent, please send it to me. But, you know, like people have died of long COVID in the last week as the result of systemic you know, fungal infections. You have folks dying of heart attacks. The, you have things that are not necessarily coded in any way that we can even look at to things that wouldn't show up as a covid death right because we don't have a code for like a long covid death we don't have an understanding collectively within the taxonomy of what a long covid death is doctors are figuring that out now and doing it in a way that is incredibly prejudicial of course right like because we are living through a moment where we are pretending that long COVID is not real. So the very criteria by which a long COVID death is going to be judged is what is up for debate right now. And you can bet the pressure to minimize what long COVID is, who has long COVID, whether or not they even actually have it, and what a diagnosis of long COVID even means long-term for someone's morbidity, their health, their mortality, et cetera, These are things that are highly contestable right now. And what John's doing is undermining the fact that people with long COVID are not just like sick for a long time and not doing their best to get better, but they are like sick with a very serious systemic debilitating disease that is killing a percentage of them. And like, it's not helping them that every single fucking day, Folks with long COVID have to be exposed to news story after post after casual fucking comment that long COVID isn't real, that it's easy to get better. Like, excuse me, Dr. Ja, how you've worked with patients before. How the fuck do you think that makes a person feel if that's the illness that they have? You know, so he's never going to think about that because he doesn't give a shit. But like, That is part of the social determinants of health, Mm. right? How your disease is talked about in the press fucking matters. And it's really frustrating to see, you know, the way that you just sort of like, it's so casually weaponized against folks with long COVID in a way that both makes them miserable and then like undermines any of their speech about their own disease and their experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're rounding the corner on the uh, on the opinion piece now. Jaw continues. There is a small group of our most vulnerable neighbors, <laughs> those who are profoundly immune compromised due to chemotherapy. <laughs> the pandemic is other people <laughs> or recent organ transplant. Yeah, I love this move from. Uh, I mean, so much of this, like the 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 language of um, nearly every COVID death is preventable, and the like profoundly immune comp only the profoundly immune compromise like so much of this language is so again it's like repackaged pandemic of the unvaccinated it's yeah, well, like it's a, a new version of it but a lot of people as being fakers it's like okay mm-hmm. like yeah. how immuno like how immunocompromised is immunocompromised enough profound ashish jaw yeah Medium? is profound I think- yeah I think he's also referring to something specific here, which is that like there have been studies that have shown that the the immunocompromised people who are most fucked, not like that they're the only ones who are fucked, but the most fucked immunocompromised people are people on Imuran and Rituximab. Rituximab and Imuran are like immunomodulating drugs. Hmm. They fuck with the B cells and they fuck with B memory cells. So it's basically like you're you're kind of unprotected in a raw dog 2020 kind of way. And so what he's talking about is like, 
the most vulnerable immunocompromised people yeah, of then, all of course, immunocompromised people to frame it as right, are those not my two groups. problem. Yeah. Right. But he's yeah. saying that most vulnerable category of folks who are super fucked, right? Or, or folks who, who can't yeah. mask or who can't get vaccinated for whatever reason who are immunocompromised or who aren't immunocompromised. There are plenty of people who, you know, they they don't breathe through their mouth and nose. They breathe through a trach, right? Like Alice Wong, who breathes through a trach, she can't wear a mask like over her trach. She breathes through her throat. Everyone around her needs to mask up so that they don't spew their COVID into the hole in her throat that she breathes through, right? Like, but there are thousands and tens of thousands of people in the United States who breathe and talk through their throat who can't wear a mask. It is not just those two groups of people on that one study who were the most vulnerable who fucking count. But when you slice and dice things that way, you know, it's a great rhetorical tool for making everybody sound like they're full of shit. When they're worried mm-hmm. about yeah. being exposed to COVID. And it's the total like hubris of like risk. I don't know. It's like scientific hubris that's like built into this whole thing. And I know we've talked about this before in terms of like performing your individualized risk assessment. And like this uh, <laughs> is kind of just the same, the same thing, but like how, how hubristic it is to just like cavalierly say something like that, you know, like there's a small group of our most vulnerable. It's like, okay, but it's what we talk about all the time. Like it's not, there's not an answer key. You know what I mean? That anyone holds as to like what everyone's level of risk is. Like there is some level of this that is like uncertain and truly unknown in the future. And like, I don't know, whatever. I'm getting onto like a little rant about my like personal things that uh, annoy me about COVID discourse. But like, this seems to reflect one particular thing that annoys me about COVID discourse, which is like the scientific hubris of writing and speaking and acting as though we have, or someone, you know, has, or can have perfect knowledge of like who the truly vulnerable people really are. Like Mm -hmm. what risk like really it's like this is just like a very nebulous and socially constructed property of like individual human beings that like is impossible to know in that way anyway that's all it reminds me of my experience going to a chronic pain doctor and you know explaining like a pain circumstance i was seeking treatment for and the first thing they said is well that's not the worst thing i've ever heard of before (laughs) and i was like that doesn't help me. It's like cool. Fuck you. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, what is? Why would you say Just that? Just think if you were in uh, the tail of the distribution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> of the distribution that I have in my head, right? Like, I know what the population I just, of. Like, I, I want to imagine the show Diagnosis Murder, but like the guy. <laughs> But like whatever his name is, like the the doctor in the show is like, well, statistical frequency. This is a pretty pretty bad murder, but uh, I'm not going to worry about it. It's it's not in the tail. It's it's in the tail of distribution. A last, maybe a final uh, note on this before I uh, conclude. I think that the word choice, um, we've brought this up already, but just to narrow in for one second on the word choice neighbors again. no evidence to back this up, but I just want to say that what this re- with that read like to me was that Ashish is familiar with our criticism of CDC messaging sounding like uh, yeah. immunocompromised people do not live in society and therefore chose <laughs> to use the word neighbors as though that was the problem. That's I, not the problem. That's not the problem. So to bring this to a conclusion, 
Jaw writes, People often ask how we will know the pandemic is over. There is no dramatic declaration of victory over this new and deadly virus that reshaped our lives for so many years. But now, the virus no longer needs to reorder our lives and our priorities. Again, standard Biden administration pablum. Because the virus continues to evolve, we need to be smart and stay ahead of it. Uh, (laughs) What we've been saying. Um, Annual shots treatments when infected and continuing to do things like improving indoor air quality to reduce risk of infections. Risk of infections. Risk. Risk Uh, of infections. If we do all of that, we really can get back to our full set of activities without the nagging feeling about whether we are being safe or not. We are. Ugh. Yeah, that nagging I, feeling about whether we're being safe, because that's what's motivating everyone here is just some abstract, disembodied, like sense of social responsibility. Like ugh, an intrusive what? thought. I have yeah. a theory about this <laughs> paragraph. I mean, I think this paragraph refers to like the visual problem that masking represents towards like, you know, moving forward. You know, masking's not mentioned here, right? Like he's like, not. we've got this framework, right? We've got all these tools. You don't need to live with the nagging feeling of whether or not you're being safe. And I was like, what could that possibly be? But the only visible sign of the pandemic that actually exists, but sporadic and incomplete masking in society. You know, I think it just ties back into, you know, what the true sentiment around the masking recommendations has always been, which Rochelle Walensky so effortlessly and masterfully summed up as masking is the scarlet letter of the pandemic, right? Like this is an issue of visual representation that he's talking about here. That nagging feeling you're not being safe, that nagging feeling that the pandemic might still be a problem. Well, you know, just let it go. Those people, they're just hypochondriacs. They're just imagining that they're more at risk than they are. Those very narrow, few risk adverse people that just don't understand that they're actually fine, like losses on them. You know, this is this is the total framework for dismissing and ignoring like the material reality around people. Yeah. You know, to that end, I think the really interesting thing to me is to sort of read this as part of the overall long tail of the Biden administration's decision to like, uh, I suppose you could say curry positive sentiment toward itself and to- or towards its presidency by telling the majority of the US the pandemic is over for them, which I know we've been saying over the course of this episode. But I think um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, considering that, um, you know, and, and I, I think this actually brings to mind also some of the things that you were saying about long COVID to be about like the sort of seeming pressure uh, coming from some of these minimization folk to like narrow the range of who can be considered like a genuine long COVID person or who can be, who's like considered a faker or how big or pervasive uh, the issue is alongside how big or pervasive COVID is in itself. I think there's a moment that I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of weeks where, which is the, uh, you know, I've been kind of rethinking back about the pandemic of the unvaccinated line and how one of the things that happened at that point in, you know, spring, summer 2021, when they started saying, you know, the pandemic is over for you if you've been vaccinated, essentially, uh, it's only a problem for you if you're unvaccinated. How there was a huge, so obviously that pissed off a, a large group of people. Um, there's a bunch of people in the disabled community or communities that were like, uh, very pissed off about that. But um, there was one group of people that I think 
even, you know, I often kind of forget about being really active around that time. And for about a year following that, which is there were a lot of people who were parents of kids under 12 who were really pissed by the pandemic of the unvaccinated line. And I think, uh, you know, obviously, but the the reason that that was in part was because like it wasn't until I think um, spring 2022 that uh, the vaccine was approved for kids five to 12. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in the intervening time between when you have in like July 2021, uh, Rochelle Walensky saying this is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated Biden repeating that in the fall, you had all these parents of kids from five to 12 who were pissed, Mm -hmm. who were really mad about this. And I remember one of the conversations that I remember a conversation that we had on here where we were talking about like, you you know, that's obviously that's important, like, um, like good, but hold that anger because eventually that, you know, the vaccine is going to be approved and you're going to have to remember like the, the, the thing that like comes in to sort of mollify you because now you like your kid can get vaccinated. Like, you can still hold on to that solidarity with these people who you're forming solidarity with now, people with long COVID, people who are disabled or immunocompromised, right? Who have been saying all along, like, fuck this pandemic, the unvaccinated shit, fuck how you're trying to narrow the, you know, the horizon of who is susceptible. And, you know, I can't help but think of that moment, I suppose, um, when I see stuff like Jaw saying, uh, like, I guess now COVID is like, a problem only for if you're pr- profoundly immune compromised mm. or um you know there was that like david leonhart too clearly in conversation with jaw because that the piece from a couple of weeks ago the david leonhart piece like quotes jaw extensively but you know david leonhart too um you know a couple of weeks ago when he basically wrote uh let me see if i have the quote here yeah Leonhardt wrote, one point of confusion, I think, has been the way that many Americans, including we in the media, have talked about the immunocompromised. They are a more diverse group than casual discussion often imagines. Most immunocompromised people are at little additional risk from COVID, unquote. Um, And, you know, my point is basically, if this isn't an attempt to say, like, to narrow the possibility or like the space of like who, like to finally try and address like, okay, let's make sure we've basically, there are sort of two remaining camps of people who many of the like, whether it's Ashish Jha or David Leonhardt or like the Biden administration itself, who they have to mollify still. Um, one of those group of people is basically people with long COVID. One of those groups of people is broadly disabled and immunocompromised people right not to say that there's not overlap i'm just saying that like these are these are like the two things that are being targeted literally in ashish jaw's thing he's like long covid people are fine uh because there's treatments or treatments coming or whatever and i'm not going to be specific about that and immunocompromised people are fine i'm not going to elaborate further but you know maybe you're not as immunocompromised as you think you are or something is is the message and it's basically all i'm saying is I don't know where the fuck this is all going to go, but similar to uh, what, you know, we've said before and certainly what I feel like, you know, discussions that we've had around a certain population was then marked as like, okay, the uh, like material issues addressed go about your business or whatever, by which I mean, like, you know, when finally kids five to 12 could like get the vaccine and a lot of people stayed with us, right? A lot of people are still in solidarity yeah. um, over that. And I think that's fa- fucking fantastic. But, you know, some people were like, okay, cool, all good or whatever. And I'm not saying that like these issues are going to be addressed, but I'm just saying whatever happens and whatever the uh, 
sort of narratives become, I mean, hold on to that solidarity mm-hmm. because that's, I mean, that's basically all I can say, you know, I mean, yeah. it's a profoundly destabilized and like fucked uh, time that we're in. But I think, I, I think it is very revealing that, uh, you know, in his treatise here about just fucking ignore COVID already and also get off my back, essentially um, <laughs> coming from Ashish jaw that he has to take effort to spend a couple paragraphs being like, and I know that the two of you groups are so mad at me, but like, come on now, most people can ignore COVID. And what if we looked at this as like an individual risk thing and not a structural issue? Like, come on, you can do that. Right. Um, and well, what obviously, if? as I we mean, know, like, it doesn't work that way. I was going to say, like, what if? Of course, you know, yeah, I guess you could. But I mean, one, just any look at any sort of comparative data would suggest no. But also, like, that would also be forsaking any number of other important political opportunities to organize, like, the, the mass dispossessed working class. I mean, this is just I mean, it's it's it is a political argument more than anything else. It's not an it's it really isn't. It has the touch and feel of a, a, you know, an argument from, you know, empirical epidemiology. It's a, it is a fundamentally <laughs> yeah. a political argument, and that's, you know, okay. I, I, I have come to expect that. I know that that's what it is. Let's not pretend that it's anything <laughs> else. And let's. And the other thing is, I'm not going to try to argue that it is anything. Like on the basis, as if it were, as if the main thing I had to do was to disprove it. Um, like the empirical substance of the claims. Yeah, it matters, but it's like far more important, I think, to see it as uh, as part of a doctrine, yeah. as part of a, a doctrine that even as people are saying, well, you know, neoliberalism is as an economic philosophy, you know, dead. I think it is really hard to see how that is, you know, simultaneously true across all of these areas of public life. I think, I think it, you know, even if you could say that like in terms of macroeconomics, that there's, there's something distinctive going on in, in places like the United States that looks more like industrial policy. Right. And there's not not classically neoliberal, like in the WTO sense of that word, like, nah, you know, look, looking at it here, it's like, that's, this is evidence to me that that political doctrine is still is still alive and well and something to be contended with politically squarely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this thing that Murray J. Edelman wrote about in his uh, 1985 essay on like symbolic politics called Political Language and Political Reality that I had our reading group read about a year ago together. And, um, you know, it, he writes in that about how there's really no way to kind of establish the validity of certain political positions to someone, you know, to sufficient satisfaction to someone who has a material and moral reason to hold a different view. And fundamentally, you know, what we're really, I think, talking about today is like how political reality is is really maintained and shaped by language, right? And by the interpretation of events that becomes dominant, not necessarily by like, quote unquote, reality, right? That's something we've been up against this whole time. But Phil, I think the way that you framed it is kind of like the perfect way to close us out today. So unless anyone has anything else they wanted to add, this might be a good place to leave it for today. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. One thing to note 
Uh, we are going to be off the week of the 14th. Mm, yes. Um, we'll be right back right after that. But we are not, well, B and I are quote unquote off. <laughs> it's going to be a working off uh, essentially as we prepare to go into the fall and uh, certainly watch closely what is going to happen with this uh, wave and everything. But yeah, we're off the week of the 14th and we'll be, we'll be back that following week. Research and development week. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Patrons, as always, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. Everything will be alright tonight Everything will be alright tonight